Good afternoon, good morning, and welcome to the virtual Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at Cato and the author of the new book, uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And related to that, uh, I'm glad that everyone's taking a break from the uh, Barrett confirmation hearings uh, this morning. If you didn't watch, I envy you. There was really nothing uh, new. The Republicans and Democrats played their assigned roles. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about something more interesting, and that is the First Amendment jurisprudence of the Roberts Court. Uh, more than any other Supreme Court justice in recent history, John Roberts has played a defining role in shaping our free speech law. He's written more than twice as many majority opinions in this area than any of his colleagues, and there's a certain resolve there, at once philosophical and tactical. In 95% of the free expression cases decided in his 15-year tenure, Roberts has been in the majority, and he's taken the lead opinion nearly 30% of the time. So there's something special about this area of cases, something that speaks to how John Roberts sees the court. In the first comprehensive report on the Roberts Court's free speech jurisprudence, Ron Collins and David Hudson, each of whom has published more than 10 books on free speech, examined the 56 such cases handed down by the Roberts Court from 2005 through 2020. The author's eye-opening study provides a detailed look at the cases and the justices' differing approaches. Here to tell us about their new report are its authors. Uh, Ron Collins, who, among other things, is the Harold S. Scheffelman Scholar at the University of Washington School of Law and book editor at SCOTUS Blog, and David Hudson, who serves as a Justice Robert H. Jackson Legal Fellow for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and a First Amendment Fellow for the Freedom Forum Institute. Providing commentary on this important research are Larissa Litsky and Bob Korn Revere. Larissa is Dean and Judge C.A. Leedy Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law, where the focus of her research and teaching is the intersection of tort law and the First Amendment, with an emphasis on free speech issues in social media. Bob Corn Revere is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine, where he specializes in media, communications, information technology law, and is an adjunct scholar at Cato, in which capacity he's been my lawyer. Uh, so I'll now turn it over to uh, Ron and then David to uh, explain their study. Uh, thank you, Ilya, and what a delight it is to be here. And I very much appreciate, as does uh, David Hudson, both of us, uh, you providing this opportunity and Cato uh, to talk about our First Amendment report in the Roberts Court. Uh, and I also like to thank uh, Bob Corn Revere and uh, Dean uh, Litsky for participating. It's just an honor to have both of you uh, join us today. So thank you. Uh, just a little footnote, uh, I'm retired from the University of Washington Law School, so I just want to make sure that's in the record. Um, when the next major biography and all subsequent biographies of John Roberts are written, one thing is undoubtedly certain, his First Amendment jurisprudence. And by First Amendment jurisprudence, I mean speech and press uh, and assembly. Uh, this is an area of particular interest to him. Let me quote him. I'm probably the most aggressive defender of the First Amendment. So said John Roberts in a 2019 interview with former Attorney General uh, <clears throat> Alberto Gonzalez and now Belmont Law School Dean. Again, I'm probably the most aggressive defender of the First Amendment, and certainly uh, the cases bear that out. Let me just go over and repeat, because they're so significant, uh, some of the numbers that Ilya had mentioned to you. He has been in the majority 
95% of the times in the 56 free speech opinions decided during his tenure, 95% of the time. That means that 95% of the time, John Roberts is assigning the First Amendment free expression opinion. He has assigned those opinions, the lead opinion to himself, almost 30% of the time, which itself is remarkable. As Elliot has mentioned, he has authored twice as many majority opinions than any of his colleagues. Moreover, uh, he has written more majority opinions. John Roberts, is just as one person, has written more majority opinions when it comes to free speech than the totals of Justice Breyer, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan combined. So you take the four liberal justices, and if you combine all of their majority opinions, they're still fewer than John Roberts's. Roberts's total majority opinions a number the same as Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. So if you combine Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, their majority opinions, all right, they are certainly no greater in number than that of the Chief Justice. And while Justice Kennedy has often been seen as the point man uh, <clears throat> when it comes to First Amendment uh, cases, uh, during his tenure, John Roberts has authored more than twice as many majority free speech opinions than Justice Kennedy. So um, how does this compare with the Rehnquist record? Well, uh, William Rehnquist affirmed free, affirmed free speech cases in 20% of the cases. 20% of the cases that he participated in, he affirmed a free speech claim. Whereas Roberts has done so in over 55% of the cases that have come before him. Notwithstanding his importance in this area, significantly, and my colleague David Hudson may want to touch on this, the two most important opinions uh, thus far from the Roberts Court, of course, are Citizens United, decided in 2010 by Justice Kennedy, the campaign finance case, and Reed versus Town of Gilbert decided in 2015, the content-based strict scrutiny analysis case. So the two most important opinions thus far, Citizens United and uh, Reed versus Town of Gilbert, uh, notably were not written by the Chief Justice. In terms of the liberal wing, uh, during her entire tenure on the court, uh, Justice Kagan has written one majority opinion and Justice uh, Breyer is in dissent 23% of the time, very significant number. Because from the liberal vantage point, particularly when it comes to campaign financing cases and uh, <clears throat> uh, union free speech cases, uh, by their measure, what the Roberts Court is doing is, quote, weaponizing the First Amendment. Uh, and they are they take quite exception to the fact that the most winning category of cases decided by the Roberts Court had been campaign um, finance cases. In terms of originalist jurisprudence, there's been a lot of talk about originalist jurisprudence, particularly given the enormous contributions to that by Justice Scalia. And as Justice Kagan said, you know, we're all originalists in one way or another uh, today. That may be true in many respects, but it's certainly not true when it comes to the Roberts Court and its free speech jurisprudence. Uh, for all his uh, many writings and discussion of originalist jurisprudence, in no free speech case has Justice, uh, did Justice Scalia uh, ever go into any discussion, an extended discussion of originalist or textualist jurisprudence. Once in a petition clause case, Borough versus uh, Dorea, um, or Borough of Dorea versus uh, Guarneri, uh, he did talk about the petition clause in originalist jurisprudence, but apart from that, nothing. 
In terms of Justice Thomas, apart from a concurrence in a student speech case and a case, uh, some discussion in a video games case, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, and uh, some uh, fleeting discussion in Lonis versus United States about intentional threats. Um, he hasn't written um, very much in this area. He did write in a denial of cert case, McKee versus Cosby decided in 20, uh, denied, cert denied in 2019 that New York Times versus was wrongly decided. New York Times versus was wrongly decided. So we may have a lot of originalists on the court, um, uh, but in terms of this free speech jurisprudence, uh, there is a, a glaring absence of any extended discussion in this area. Finally, I just want to mention a couple of things uh, before I hand it over to David. Uh, the First Amendment is more than what uh, judges uh, <clears throat> write and what professors uh, pontificate about. It's what lawyers do. I think it's very important to keep in mind that people like Bob Cornerbeer, people like Floyd Abrams, people like Paul Clement, people like James Bob, James Bob, Bob are the ones who keep uh, the First Amendment live in many respects when it comes to their litigation. And a new member, a new face uh, that we're going to, I think, be seeing a lot more is Kristen Wagoner. Uh, you may know the name. She successfully argued the Masterpiece Cake, cake, uh, cake Shop case. Uh, she has a cert petition before the court, Arlene Flowers versus Washington, involving custom floral art and same-sex weddings. And she also has another cert petition in a, in a disclosure requirement case. So keep your eyes on those lawyers when it comes to the First Amendment uh, in terms of Supreme Court litigation. And with that, I'm happy to turn it over to my colleague, David Hudson. Thanks, Ron. And, and thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this project with you. And many thanks to Cato. I wanna talk about three things when it comes to the Roberts Court and the First Amendment. And those are category, context and content. And those are all important in First Amendment methodologies. The first point is category. One way that we determine whether speech is protected by the First Amendment is to determine whether it falls into an unprotected category of speech. So for example, the US Supreme Court recognized the obscenity exception in 1957 in Roth, the United States. It recognized the fighting words exception in 1942 in Szaplinski, New Hampshire. And he recognized incitement to imminent lawless action in Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. And over time, the United States Supreme Court has narrowed these unprotected categories of speech, leading to a society that protects uh, more freedom of expression. One of the hallmarks of the Roberts Court has been its reluctance to recognize new unprotected categories of speech. And the Roberts Court has done this four times. In 2010, in United States versus Stevens, the United States Supreme Court refused to recognize the unprotected category of images of animal cruelty. In 2011, Entertainment Merchants Association versus Brown, the US Supreme Court refused to recognize an exception for so-called violent video games. In 2012, in Snyder versus Phelps, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to recognize an, a, a new unprotected category for a funeral protest by the Westboro Baptist Church. And then in 2012 as well, in United States versus Alvarez, 
the U.S. Supreme Court refused to recognize the, a new unprotected category for purely false speech. Now, turning to context, context also matters in First Amendment jurisprudence. And specifically by context, I'm referring to the status of the speaker. And it's a reality of modern First Amendment law that the government has greater power to restrict speech when it acts as employer, educator, warden, or commander-in-chief. Stated another way, if you're a public employee, if you're a public school student, if you're a prisoner, or if you're a member of the military, you have less free speech rights than you would in general society. Now, on this front, the Roberts Court has not been terribly protective of free speech. So, for example, in Beard versus Banks in 2006, the United States Supreme Court took a very narrow view of the First Amendment rights of prison inmates, something far less than what, for example, Justice Thurgood Marshall took in Procunier versus Martinez in 1974. In 2006, the United States Supreme Court decided Garcetti versus Ceballos, a decision in which the United States Supreme Court, by a five to four ruling, ruled that when public employees speak pursuant to their official job duties, the Constitution does not insulate them from discipline and they have no First Amendment protection. It doesn't matter how important the speech is. It doesn't matter if the employee is a pure whistleblower. If the employee is engaged in official job duty speech, they have absolutely no First Amendment protection. In 2007, the Roberts Court also, by a five to four vote, failed to recognize the free speech rights of public, uh, of, of public school students in a case called Morse versus Frederick, colloquially known as the bong hits for Jesus case because Joseph Frederick and several others upheld an eight by 14 foot banner that said bong hits for Jesus, although they were off campus as the Olympic torch relay was passing through Juneau, Alaska. So on context, again, the Roberts Court has been quite deferential to public schools, to public employers, um, and to certainly prisons. Now, with regard to content, probably still the chief methodological tool that we have in First Amendment jurisprudence is the so-called content discrimination principle. It's probably expressed most tellingly by Justice Thurgood Marshall in Chicago Police Department versus Mosley in 1972, when he wrote, above all else, the First Amendment means that the government may not restrict speech because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. And for better or for worse, the content discrimination principle is the chief tool. As Justice O'Connor said in 1994, uh, no better alternative has come to light. In 2015, the Roberts Court decided what is one of the most important First Amendment decisions in recent memory, that's Reed versus Town of Gilbert. The case involved an Arizona sign ordinance that provided very different treatment, whether a sign was an ideological sign, a political sign, or a temporary, a temporary durational sign. Both a federal district court and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that this Arizona sign ordinance was content neutral because the underlying purpose of the law was not to discriminate against content or viewpoint. When it goes up to the United States Supreme Court, however, the United States Supreme Court unanimously reverses, 
but they do so under very different rationales. And Justice Clarence Thomas was the author of the majority opinion. And what Justice Clarence Thomas said is we have to take that crucial first step. If a law does make distinctions based on content, then it's content-based and as such is subject to strict scrutiny. Justice Kagan, for example, wrote a concurring opinion in which she essentially says that no, a lot of times something that may draw facial distinctions does not have an underlying purpose of content discrimination. Thank you. Thank you, David and Ron, fascinating stuff. I'll just remind the audience that if you have questions, you can either submit them on our webpage if that's where you're viewing this, or through uh, our Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube platforms using the hashtag CatoScotus. All right, and with that, I'll turn it over to Larissa Litsky. So I just wanna thank the Cato Institute for uh, letting me be here today. And my focus as a scholar has been on the media, both old media, mainstream media, and new media. And so my remarks today will be focused on the Roberts Court and what it's had to say about the media. Uh, in the last 15 years since Roberts has been Chief Justice, there's been a digital revolution. The newspaper industry has been very hard hit by the digital revolution. And today there are 47% fewer uh, newspaper reporters, editors, uh, photographers than we had in 2015. Meanwhile, the tech giants have become media giants who control our access to most of the content we see or receive. And so one might think that in the light of this digital revolution, the Roberts Court would have taken lots of new and old media cases to clarify uh, freedom of the press, what is the meaning of freedom of the press today, and how does this um, relate to free speech rights. But in fact, what we have is the story of the dog that didn't bark. Prior courts had taken a lot of cases of interest to the media, and the media had litigated those cases to the court. For example, defamation is always a, a big um, uh, case is a, is a type of case that the media are always greatly interested in. But in the last 15 years, the U.S. Supreme Court really hasn't done anything significant in the area of defamation or reporters' privilege or any of the other types of issues that reporters, uh, that the media are most interested in. Now, the what we can glean from the few media cases they have taken is actually very little. In FCC versus Fox television stations, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to tell us whether uh, the FCC can regulate broadcast indecency still under the First Amendment. Uh, so under older precedents, the Supreme Court said that the broadcast medium is different than other media because of its pervasiveness, because of the scarcity of the airwaves. And that line of reasoning that broadcast media are different has certainly been challenged today when oftentimes uh, the consumer can't tell what's broadcast over the airwaves or what's cable or what they're getting through the internet because it all comes through the same platform. And so the differential treatment of broadcast media seems to call out for potentially a new approach. 
But the Supreme Court neatly sidestepped that issue on a narrow issue of statutory construction. And so we don't know if the First Amendment still can treat broadcasters differently in terms of allowing some kinds of content regulation that we wouldn't allow in other media. Uh, just this term, the Supreme Court just took up a case that's going to be quite interesting about broadcast media. That case is called National Association of Broadcasters, National Association of Broadcasters versus Prometheus Radio Project. And that case will address what's known as cross ownership rules that prohibit a newspaper and a broadcaster from ownership of the media in the same market. It's designed to make sure that there are a diversity of different uh, voices and viewpoints in the marketplace of ideas by restricting media and newspaper cross ownership. And so the court is going to take up that issue. Uh, but that's just about it in terms of old media cases. And then in terms of new media cases, you do have a case, uh, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants, which deals with an attempt to by California to regulate interactive violent video games and restrict them from the hands of minors. And the Supreme Court in that case uh, basically did not accept fear mongering about new media and the dangers of new media and it taking over the minds of our youth. And so the Supreme Court said there's no evidence that interactive violent video games are any different than youth media that have come before and California can't restrict them from minors in the ways that they were attempting to do. Um, the only other cases dealing with new media um, are not very instructive. There's one in which the court in dicta recognizes that all of us use social media as a public forum to get our views out. Uh, which is which is true and useful, but there's no telling what that dicta might mean for future cases involving new media. And then in another case involving uh, threats made over Facebook, threats made over social media, again, the Supreme Court sidestepped the opportunity to tell us whether the fact that a threat occurred on social media uh, change the First Amendment analysis in any significant way. And so they, they really, at every turn, have either avoided or sidestepped the opportunity to tell us something interesting about old media rights and new media rights uh, in the last 15 years. Now, what is the court interested in? Obviously, uh, as we've said previously, the Roberts Court is very interested in First Amendment cases. They're just not that interested in media law cases. So they're very interested in free speech cases as they affect the electoral process. And in those cases, they've tried to set out very concretely a few key principles. They've set out concretely that government limits on political spending are limits on political speech. And perhaps most famously, they did that in Citizens United, but there's a whole line or string of cases enunciating this pr principle that limits on political spending or limits on political speech. And the other principle that comes through absolutely clearly in the decisions 
is that the government may not impose limits on speech in order to level the playing field uh, between the speech of rich and poor speakers. And again, these are the principles that the Roberts Court seems most interested in. They have very little to do with the media. But luckily, there are some other cases that do establish precedents that really do benefit both old and new media speakers. So one of the principles that the Roberts Court has upheld is broad protection for unpopular speakers. And so they've given broad free speech protection to funeral protesters, about as unpopular a speaker as you can possibly imagine. And then they've given broad protection to people who lie about receiving a constitutional medal of honor. So it really is speech that doesn't um, you know, call out to us that it strikes us as having much value, but the court has said that those types of unpopular speakers and unpopular speech deserve broad protection. And I think this suggests that calls that we're getting now for regulation of fake news, for example, are going to fall on death deaf ears in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is rightly going to trust each of us to decide what's true and what's false and what media we consume. So the laissez-faire uh, in the marketplace of ideas strand of First Amendment jurisprudence is very strong and that stands to benefit the media. Uh, the other thing the court has done is they've given a broad definition of what counts as a matter of public concern. So for example, in the funeral protest cases, they believed that the speakers protesting the funerals of servicemen were actually conveying a message of public concern about the link between military policy and the government's toleration of homosexuality. And so that's a quite broad de definition of public concern. And that ends up being the kind of definition that's going to benefit all speakers, but also media speakers. And then another principle that is going to benefit the media is a refusal to curtail First Amendment rights of new media speakers based on fear of new technologies. And we already talked about the Brown versus Entertainment Merchants case where they're not afraid of violent video games and indeed Justice Scalia, in what I thought was a lovely rhetorical flourish, compares uh, the violent video games to Grimm's fairy tale and basically says children can stand a bit of violence they have you know, ever since Grimm's fairy tales. Now that said, even though these free speech precedents from the Roberts Court really redound to the benefit of media, I have to point out that there's alarming dicta in the Roberts Court cases that suggest that the Roberts Court, unlike its predecessors, really doesn't believe that media play a special role in our democracy. So most famously, uh, there's dicta in Citizens United that describes media corporations as elitist, as wielding political power and influence disproportionate to their public support as being answerable to their corporate overlords and saying concretely that they're more, no more deserving of special protection than any other corporation is. 
So in other words, media corporations and Walmart are the same in the Roberts court's eyes. Uh, compound that with Justice Thomas's skepticism about whether the media needs special protections from defamation that he uh, has expressed in saying that New York Times versus Sullivan should be overturned. And it creates an alarming playing field for media actors that might want to litigate cases on up to the Supreme Court. Um, the other the other piece of dicta that uh, I think Dean, media Dean, should I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we're, we're gonna have to, okay. we'll come back to you on this. Okay. Let's go to, let's okay, go to Bob Corn Revere for his comment. Yep. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ilya, and, and thanks, Cato, for asking me to participate in this event. Um, I am particularly happy to be able to provide commentary on uh, Ron and David's paper because it really does come at uh, a particularly important time. Uh, the Roberts Court has, from the beginning, generated uh, quite a bit of comment on its uh, First Amendment jurisprudence, and uh, uh, I, I think appropriately so. And this. Uh, this report provides hard numbers by which you can evaluate that. I have to say, for those of us who knew John Roberts in private practice, uh, we didn't necessarily see it coming. Uh, not that we doubted that it might happen, that he might show a special interest in the First Amendment, I, but as a private practice lawyer, uh, it's not the sort of thing that he would uh, necessarily talk about. And I worked on several um, First Amendment cases with him when we were partners, including when he played the role of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist in helping me prepare for oral argument in uh, United States versus Playboy Entertainment Group. Uh, I guess as appropriate for anyone who aspires to be on the court and who may be there um, someday, uh, he didn't go out of his way to express his personal views on the First Amendment. Uh, but fortunately, we've been the beneficiary of that since he's been on the court. Um, I think there have been a number of commentators like uh, Professor Joel Gora, who've described it as the strongest First Amendment court in history. Uh, obviously, not everybody agrees, and it reflects the polarized uh, nature of our times. Um, and uh, you can sort of look at the areas in which there have been cases affirming First Amendment rights where commentators have disagreed. And again, it does reflect that political po uh, polar uh, polarity. Uh, Ron Collins mentioned a few of them earlier on campaign speech, for example, where there are some very strong First Amendment opinions that uh, establish really useful principles that as First Amendment litigators we find can be used in many other contexts. The cases involving compulsory union dues, for example, uh, the government employee speech uh, cases that are uh, somewhat more ambiguous in that regard, but uh, nonetheless, uh, there are areas that have sparked that kind of disagreement. And one of the um, uh, criticisms of the Robert Court in that regard has been that it is result-oriented. Now, there's some irony there, of course, because typically people who complain about a court being result-oriented are mostly upset because they thought the court reached the wrong result. Uh, and so it does beg the question of who's being uh, result-oriented. In, in fact, one um, prominent uh, First Amendment, uh, first uh, Supreme Court watcher who I think should know better, uh, has criticized the Roberts Court record in First Amendment cases, saying that it shows a strong uh, record in First Amendment cases in those cases that are, quote, fringe or unimportant. And I'll get to those in a minute. Uh, 
so that it can then mask its real agenda of uh, subverting the campaign finance laws and things like that. I think that's a particularly um, short-sighted view of the Roberts Court because those cases described as the fringe or unimportant cases, I think, are part of what will be the Roberts Court's strongest legacy in the First Amendment area. Uh, both Ron and David talked about them as those cases in which the court has refused to create new categories of unprotected speech. Cases like fighting word, or the categories including fighting words, obscenity, defamation, uh, speech uh, um, uh, integral to criminal activity, uh, child pornography, those limited categories that are specifically defined and limited and for which the court has said it's not going to create new categories. Now it's particularly remarkable that it has done so in those areas um, because as Larissa just said, those are the cases in which you would not immediately think of the speech as being particularly important. An inveterate liar about getting a medal of honor, uh, violent video games, the Westboro Baptist Church um, creating a nuisance at uh, the funerals of servicemen, um, you know, crush videos. All of those seem to be areas where it's not the kind of speech that is going to elevate the republic. And yet, those are the cases in which adhering to and reaffirming First Amendment principles are both more difficult and most important. Because if you can adhere to the principles in those cases, then they will stand the test of time. Um, and it's in those cases in which those of us in the First Amendment advocacy community had the most concerns going in that the court might not uphold the First Amendment claim um, simply because the speech was so repellent or so seemingly unimportant. Now, I do have to say that critics of the Roberts Court do have their good points. Uh, and, and make strong criticisms in certain areas. Uh, Dean Erwin Shimerinsky, for example, of uh, Berkeley Law School, has criticized the Roberts Court's record, and I think he has done so uh, for very good reasons. And he points to certain cases, uh, like Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, uh, in being able to um, prohibit material support to organizations listed as terrorist organizations at the government's discretion, Morse versus Frederick, which involves uh, student speech, Garcetti versus Sabalov, which is uh, public employment, um, and a more recent one that I, I'm not sure that he has mentioned, but uh, I think also falls in this category is Nieves versus Bartlett, which where the court held that um, where you have probable cause to arrest someone, that it cuts off their ability to bring a uh, First Amendment retaliation claim. Uh, those are all areas in which I think the Roberts Court didn't look as strongly at the First Amendment arguments as I think they might have, uh, areas where I think there could be improvement on the court. Um, but by and large, when you compare that to the overall record of the court, uh, it uh, I think is a very strong one. Speaking, by the way, of um, uh, the exceptions to the First Amendment and the fact that the court is held the line, I do want to raise one small point of criticism of the report, and this is something that Ron and I have talked about in the past, where he uh, it provides a link and says that there aren't just five exceptions categories of the First Amendment. There are 48 exceptions. Uh, but I think you get to that expanded number only if you count every crime that could be committed by use of words as a separate exception. 
I think they all fall under the umbrella of speech integral to criminal activity. So speech integral to blackmail or speech integral to, um, uh, you know, some other crime like uh, uh, trafficking uh, and, and prostitution. All of those areas where if you wrap, if, if the speech and action are combined in a single element, uh, then you can create that exception, but they're not all separate exceptions based on different crimes. Um, finally, and, and again, even though overall I, I agree with the premise of the report that it is a very strong court on First Amendment reason for First Amendment uh, law, I think there are certain lapses beyond those specific cases that I mentioned that I think are worth, worth pointing out. One is how the Roberts Court has treated the concept of strict First Amendment scrutiny. For the longest time, it was thought that if a law was being subjected to strict scrutiny, that it was going to be struck down, uh, that it was strict uh, in, in, in principle, fatal in fact. Um, and that concept has been diminished somewhat under some of the Roberts Court's opinions. So, for example, under Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, uh, the court did find that it was a content-based restriction and that it was subject to strict scrutiny, but nevertheless upheld it. Uh, I think in the process watering down the concept of strict scrutiny, uh, it did the same thing in Williams U. Lee versus the Florida Bar, which involved restrictions on the ability to engage in uh, campaign advertising by uh, candidates for the judiciary in Florida. So there are areas where um, uh, I think that uh, the court could have taken a stronger First Amendment position. And then finally, the last point is that uh, there are areas where the court has not taken cases where I think it might well have uh, entertained uh, petitions for cert that were filed with them. They include generally in the area of student speech, student speech rights, uh, compelled commercial speech. And of course, there have been no cases in uh, a long time for press rights in general. So. Um, Overall, I think the court has been very strong on First Amendment. I credit Ron and David and uh, bringing that to light and look forward to the rest of the discussion. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to let Ron and David respond to what they just heard and also throw in uh, a comparison to uh, a study done by First Amendment scholar Eugene Volokh on the Rehnquist Court. And he looked at, I think, 1994 to 2002 when there wasn't uh, any turnover uh, on uh, the court uh, uh, composition and found that, that the top three justices on these issues uh, were Kennedy, Thomas, and Souter. So middle, right, left, uh, kind of interesting finding. Um, so anyway, I'll throw that in. And then if anyone else has, we're, we're, we have a lot of questions. I already know that we're not going to be able to get to them all. So thank you very much. More questions, feel free uh, to submit them. Hashtag Cato SCOTUS if you're on social media. Uh, otherwise, on our website is fine. Uh, Ron and David, before we open it up to the crowd questions. Just a quick point, Justice Souter, uh, during his tenure on the Roberts Court, as distinguished from the Rehnquist Court, has never authored a single majority opinion. So big difference in courts. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, Larissa, when you were talking about the uh, First Amendment and the new technologies, I think a very important, and I think the audience wants to take note of this, is Justice Alito's concurrence in Brown versus Entertainment Merchants joined by the Chief Justice. And let me just read two sentences from that. I think it's very important. This is Justice Alito concurring, joined by Chief Justice Roberts. In considering the application of unchanging constitutional principles 
to new and rapidly evolving technology, this course should proceed with caution. We should make every effort to understand the new technology, and we should not hastily dismiss the judgment of legislators who may be in a better position than we are to assess the implications of the new technology. I think that's very important. The only other thing I would add is on the court this term, and I'll let uh, uh, um, David talk about it if he wants, is Trump versus Knight First Amendment Institute, the case involving President Trump's tweets and the public forum. So that case is currently before the court and we'll see what they do with it. But with that, I uh, turn it over to, uh, to David if he has anything he'd like to add. Yeah, I, I would wanted to agree with Bob on there are certain areas that the that the, the Roberts Court simply hasn't addressed, and I think one of those is how does Reed versus Town of Gilbert square with both the commercial speech doctrine and the secondary effects doctrine? Uh, the commercial speech doctrine is something that the U.S. Supreme Court created, and it essentially gave commercial speech or or pure advertising second class treatment in First Amendment law. And what's interesting about this is Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion in 44 Lickermart versus Rhode Island in 1996, said, I do not see a philosophical or historical justification for according commercial speech less protection than, at least truthful uh, commercial speech less protection than, than non-commercial speech. And yet Thomas wrote the majority opinion in Reed, or the main opinion in Reed, but yet th there's still some dissonance between the commercial speech doctrine and Reed, because if you read the Reed decision strictly, there shouldn't be a commercial speech exception. And then as Bob knows all too well, uh, the secondary effects doctrine is a sort of legal fiction uh, that the court created. Uh, it first introduced it in 1976, then elevated it in 1986 uh, to allow for the flagrant suppression of um, sexually oriented expression that is, that is non-obscene. Uh, and essentially, under the secondary effects doctrine, that allows courts to treat patently content-based restrictions on sexually oriented speech as content neutral. Um, and Reed and the secondary effects doctrine are, in my opinion, in irreconcilable tension. Uh, but so far, the lower courts are saying Reed uh, does not impact the secondary effects doctrine. Last point, I agree with both uh, uh, Dean Litsky and Bob that the Roberts Court has been very strong with regard to campaign finance. And the reality is, is that much campaign finance reform uh, legislation are direct restrictions on pure political speech. Uh, and I also agree with Bob that there are a lot of key First Amendment principles in these cases that can be used in a wide variety of other free speech contexts. Um, so I applaud the Roberts Court for its strong protection of political speech in that area. Great. Uh, let's go to audience questions. Uh, one from Philip Goldstein, uh, who uh, writes that the court has kicked the can in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And Ron, you mentioned Kristen Wagoner, who argued that, and now we don't want to get into the free exercise uh, issues, but as we all uh, recognize, the, the case is stronger if you can bring it under freedom of speech uh, rather than at least under uh, Employment Division versus Smith. That doesn't give you as, as, as good a judicial remedy for incidental uh, or non-purpose uh, non uh, religious uh, intrusion. So how do you see the court ultimately ruling on whether one can be punished for refusing to create a work of art to celebrate a same-sex marriage or other similar uh, potential conflict between 
the First Amendment anti-discrimination law. And I'll, I'll throw in also a, a case that's on the docket this year, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which involves uh, the, the city uh, disqualifying Catholic social services from uh, its foster and adoption program because it won't uh, send uh, kids to uh, same-sex couples. Uh, but there's a, there's a small free speech aspect to it. Well, it might, be, might end up uh, blowing up to something bigger about having to certify uh, conditions and, and, and things like that. So the intersection of First Amendment anti-discrimination law. Uh, just two quick comments. Employment division versus Smith, the Scalia opinion, I think its days are limited. So I wouldn't put too much stock in that uh, opinion. Uh, secondly, just speaking generally, what we're going to be facing in the days uh, to come uh, is a conflict between claims of conscience and claims of equality when it comes to gay rights. And in that respect, uh, the First Amendment, both the speech and the uh, religion clauses, uh, will uh, find themselves in um, uh, combat uh, with uh, equality principles. Anyone else want to address that? Just a bit. Uh, you know, uh, Ilya, as you know, uh, uh, I filed an amicus brief in Masterpiece Cake Shop for the First Amendment Lawyers Association, just as you filed for Cato. And um, I was disappointed to see the court decide the case on narrow grounds of uh, religious discrimination. Uh, I thought that uh, while that there was a case to be made for that on the facts of that case, uh, I wanted to see the court affirm, affirm the broader principle that uh, symbolic speech that is an artistic work is protected by the First Amendment and is a general matter that the government can't compel someone to create art. That uh, um, those principles, I think, are broader and more interesting than going off on the uh, religious discrimination grounds. And there's a danger in that, and that uh, I think recognizing uh, discriminatory acts simply by saying they are religious acts uh, creates a license for uh, for discrimination. Uh, as in the recent case that the court rejected, uh, decided not to take, involving the uh, Kentucky. Um, county clerk who refused to give out uh, um, marriage licenses. Uh, that was not an example of someone uh, who was a victim of religious discrimination, but simply an example of a government employee declining to do her job. Uh, so again, I would have preferred to see the court take the issue on head on. All right, let's move to a question by Ken Muntz, who says that He's grown very worried about the difficulty the public has distinguishing facts from opinions when consuming the news. A lack of common understanding of what is true is very dangerous. To what degree do you think First Amendment protections or the Roberts Court's jurisprudence uh, has been abused by journalists or news consumers today? Well, so that is the concern about fake news partly underlies some of the calls to uh, pull back on the protections for the media in New York Times versus Sullivan and its progeny. And in fact, I believe that's one of the underpinnings of Justice Thomas's uh, argument that they, the media get too much protection. If you really look at what's going on on the ground, however, you have a series of powerful people suing the media and it's not necessarily because they're going to win, but they're going to inflict serious litigation costs on the media for criticizing them or for, for getting involved. And so I guess I would say uh, I would be concerned 
at assuming that uh, a change in First Amendment law is the answer to the fake news problem, uh, just to make short, short, a short answer to that question. Sure. You're muted again, Bob. I thought that uh, Still the muted. questioner had. Oh, there we go. Okay. I, I thought the questioner. Now you remuted. Right. Okay. Well, actually, there's a follow-up and a different question uh, by Dan Wasmer, uh, who is posting this on Facebook, uh, and asks whether when the Justice Department, uh, the Trump Justice Department, and Democrats, to be ecumenical here, try to force a company like Facebook to limit speech under the threat of antitrust. Uh, talk about uh, those kinds of threats to either the First Amendment or the enjoyment of our speech rights. Actually, what I was just getting to, and that is, uh, if the concern is that the public can't distinguish between facts and opinion, I don't think the solution is to find some sort of government solution that's going to apply to the medium and say the medium has to sort this out, that we have to force them to be responsible, whether using the vehicle of antitrust law or some other law. And both uh, liberals and conservatives have been guilty of trying to target the messenger uh, and then uh, impose restrictions simply because they think the public is not able to distinguish between fact and opinion. Um, let's see, we have a question from uh, Nina Paula who asks, under Brandenburg, uh, about incitement of violence, uh, one of the exceptions to First Amendment protections, could the president be successfully prosecuted for inciting imminent lawless action, setting aside the Justice Department practice forbidding federal actions against sitting presidents? There already was a case that was brought in federal district court in Kentucky uh, when uh, at one of the then candidate Trump was at a rally uh, and there were some people that were coming to protest candidate Trump uh, and he allegedly said, get him out of here, get him out of here. Um, they were then forcibly removed, but then the president also said, don't hurt them, don't hurt them. And so <laughs> essentially uh, what uh, eventually was held is that, look, that's not incitement to imminent lawless action. That doesn't fit within the narrow Brandenburg exception, which was also further narrowed in Hess v. Indiana a few years later. So as Robert O'Neill used to say, it's really the Brandenburg-Hess exception. Um, so, look, I mean, the First Amendment also protects Donald Trump. He's benefited greatly from the doctrine of rhetorical hyperbole. Uh, and to start holding political officials... Uh, liable under incitement, I think, is just purely partisan and is not consonant with established First Amendment precedent. Well, and to add um, to that, sure. uh, to add to that, there's an imminence requirement for incitement that's usually not met by social media. There's enough lag time that people are supposed to think twice and restrain their own actions. And if they respond violently, it's on them, not on the speaker. I want to raise a question that I think is important that the the questioners haven't haven't uh, come up in the audience. But uh, Ron and Dave, you uh, David, you do uh, in your report in the introduction to it mention how the political salience of many free speech claims has shifted over the years. Where uh, in the '60s and '70s it would be 
liberals or progressives uh, pushing the envelope with uh, speech that was sometimes deemed, sub deemed subversive or antisocial uh, by conservatives. Uh, now it seems like it's conservatives and of course libertarians, and you quote me on that, thank you very much, uh, who are uh, making the, the uh, trying to push the court into a more speech protective area. Can you comment on that? And is that a function of there being, you know, Roberts now being the median justice and you know, being more conservative than than previous median justices would have been, or or uh, other developments in in society. Um, perhaps the greatest threat uh, to our First Amendment freedoms is when they are perceived through the lens of our own ideologies. All right, if the First Amendment doesn't protect the things that offend us, then what's the purpose? All right, and so. Uh, I think, you know, to see uh, these free speech battles as liberal or conservative, which is becoming increasingly difficult to do, uh, to decide in any variety of cases, um, I think really undermines the whole purpose of the First Amendment. The other thing I just wanted to mention in terms of facts uh, versus opinions, if you think that the situation is pretty bad in 2020, I urge you to go back and take a look at the election of 1800 and the pamphlets and circulars and broadsides that were then being distributed. They certainly rival anything we uh, see today. You can actually Google uh, a uh, video visualization of those pamphlets uh, as if they were TV campaign ads from 1800. And, <laughs> and I can uh, affirm indeed, Ron, that that, that, that rhetoric is uh, as bad or worse than anything we see today. Um, Thank you. Here's a question from Here's a question from Charles. Uh, does the First Amendment continue to provide the protections originally intended, or at least uh, the public meaning of them? If you're that kind of originalist, how has the Roberts Court affected these protections vis-a-vis -vis Citizens United? Well, uh, let me take Bob. Let me take the first part of. It. I don't think we know what protections were originally intended. And I think one of the reasons for that, uh, apart from the fact that there's not a whole lot of legislative history in the, uh, the Constitutional Convention, uh, the fact that what they knew that they were doing was creating a bulwark against censorship. I don't think they were trying to explore what First Amendment values uh, were going to be promoted. I don't know if they were going to you know, try and affirm a, a constitutional protection for deliberative democracy or for uh, the press generally or other, whatever value you want, to, you want to insert there. I think what they knew was that tyranny destroys freedom and that uh, what they were trying to do with the amendment was simply to provide uh, a guarantee that there would not be officially sanctioned censorship. Um, what we've come to recognize as First Amendment values were developed through First Amendment jurisprudence, primarily through the 20th century and now into the 21st, where you have different examples of censorship that then go, become court cases, go to court, and uh, as a, the, the cases are decided, you get a First Amendment doctrine and decide enough of those cases, and you get First Amendment jurisprudence. And through that, we've come to see what the, uh, the First Amendment protects. But I think the one constant that goes back to the founding document is that it is a prohibition of censorship. Okay, a question from Sarah Lachat. How does the Roberts Court view extending First Amendment protections to non-government institutions, 
for example, organizations given some sort of government imprimatur. That's kind of wide ranging and you can do with it what you will, I suppose. Um, anyone have anything on that? guess no one wants to speak uh, on that one. one yeah one thing to look at i guess is in the in the hallett case the, the court did uh, sort of strictly apply the state action doctrine by a 5-4 vote um so at least to five justices of the roberts court you know the state action doctrine is a uh, is a uh, central still a central animating feature of uh, modern constitutional law and we're going to see more of that in the uh, Trump versus Knight First Amendment Institute case uh, where the court, if, if they take the case, uh, we'll have to address uh, that issue. That's well, and, just and, just to be clear, that's that's the case about the uh, 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 Donald Trump blocking people on uh, his own uh, Twitter feed and whether that's uh, state action. And there, there have been similar cases regarding other politicians on other social media um um, uh, Larissa, perhaps just to, not to put you on the spot, but I imagine you've been thinking about the, that sort of social media interaction. Uh, any thoughts on, on those kinds of cases? Yeah. So I started writing about social media blocking by public officials back in 2011 before Trump was ever uh, on the scene. And I couldn't have imagined what was actually going to transpire. But mm -hmm. the argument is that when you open up the comment section, not not the president's tweets, but the comment section, uh, that you can't suppress your critics, that you can't cherry pick what people say within that space. It's just like a, a physical forum that the government opens up for citizens to come in and speak both. And I, I would expect the court to uphold its anti-content discrimination principles there within that public forum. Um, the only thing that gives me pause is I sense in the Roberts court that any speaker who needs anyone else's help to speak in any way uh, doesn't necessarily find a sympathetic ear to the idea that their speech needs to be subsidized or, or protected in any way by third parties. Well, All right. Actually, well, I think we've run out of time. Yeah. Bob, go ahead. A lot of confusion in this area because of the term public forum, which denotes public action. Uh, the court recently did that in Packingham versus North Carolina, where they talk about the Internet generally as being the recognized public forum, but not in the sense that it is a government provided forum uh, so that it doesn't mean that the government can then deputize Facebook or, or Google uh, to adopt government policies as much as it would like to. Uh, but when politicians or sitting public officials use social media and uh, allow public access and, and then try and censor it, then it does become a matter of, of state action and, and the courts can say something about it under the First Amendment. All right. Well, we've run out of time for further questions. Uh, uh, thanks to everyone for that. Uh, although I would, I can't resist uh, using a moderator's prerogative uh, before uh, closing and, and thanks to everyone for, for watching. Sorry, we couldn't get to all your questions, but of course, the uh, confirmation hearings are going on now. And John Roberts, uh, what's interesting about this report is he is now the median vote, at least has been for a couple of years uh, in uh, in general, not just uh, on First Amendment cases as he was in Citizens United, for example. Uh, but assuming Judge Barrett becomes Justice Barrett, uh, I wanna give Ron the last word and also to plug where his report is going to be uh, uh, published. 
what can we expect from the Roberts court in its next 15 years? Uh, well, far be it for me to look into a crystal ball. We have four First Amendment opinions by Judge Barrett. Uh, basically, what we know is, is that um, she, the, the vote is still uh, in. Uh, she's participated in cases involving government employees' speech, uh, government uh, prisoner communications, and COVID-19 uh, executive orders, which uh, she was part of a panel that uh, in a an opinion by Judge Wood, uh, they upheld uh, these executive orders. But uh, we still don't really know enough about her. Uh, and thank you, uh, Ilya, for, uh, and, and thanks uh, to my colleagues, uh, uh, Bob and Larissa, for their participation today. We really appreciate it. And this April, I'm happy to say that the Brooklyn Law School will host a symposium on our Roberts which is still very much uh, in the works. So thanks again to all of you. We really, really greatly appreciate it. Great. And there are other additional materials that are available on Cato's website for this event. Uh, with that, uh, thanks to all of our panelists and the authors of this fine study. Uh, we are adjourned.